A big thanks to Microsoft for sponsoring this episode of iFreaks to promote the App Center, a continuous integration, delivery, and feedback suite of cloud services for Swift and Objective-C apps. With App Center, you can automate your iOS and macOS development lifecycle, build, test, distribute, monitor, and push to ship five-star, high-quality apps faster and with confidence. Building a development pipeline in your iOS apps has always been a challenge, but with App Center, you can get started in minutes. Simply connect your GitHub and Bitbucket repos and build in the cloud, test on thousands of real iOS devices, distribute to beta testers and Apple's App Store, and monitor real-world usage with crash and analytics data. As a fully modular suite of services, you can pick and choose the service you need and connect it to the tools you already use. Sign up now on appcenter.ms and spend less time managing your app lifecycle and more time coding. Hey, everybody, and welcome to iFreaks, episode number 239. This week on our panel, we have Erica Sadoon. Hello from Denver. Guy Rombo. Hello from Brazil. I'm Andrew Madsen in Salt Lake City. This week, we have a, a returning guest, Chris Adamson. Chris, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey there. Yeah, I'm uh, Chris Adamson from Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, sometimes known as Invalid Name, uh, which is what happens when all your usual handles are taken and you just basically stick with it. Uh, I am a uh, freelance iOS and Mac developer uh, out here, as I said, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I've also uh, co-written a number of books over the years uh, and have a new one out there coming out in the next couple months here. Um, but I'm also probably best known for co-authoring, uh, both the, the introductory book that the pragmatic programmers do, uh, the last version, of which was iOS 10 SDK development, and also for co-authoring a book on core audio, which is called learning core audio. Yeah. So I know you from your core audio book. I bought that book to learn core audio. Uh, thank you. I love having customers, <laughs> uh, kind of learned it. And then we ended up hiring you to work on some stuff. Uh, at the job I was at at the time. Um, but you've actually written a bunch of stuff and your latest book, which you said is coming out in a few months, uh, is, is actually in beta now, uh, is, is called Xcode Treasures. And it's a book about Xcode. And um, I think this is actually a really interesting idea. It's not something I think I've seen before. Most books about iOS or Mac development are, you know, focused on teaching you Swift or Objective C and the frameworks, you know, or some or some niche part of those. But anything you learn about Xcode is just kind of a side effect. And yet, Xcode is a pretty deep and powerful tool, full of a lot of stuff that you might not just discover on your own. Um, and and I, I'm glad to see a book like this. How how did you how did how did this come about writing this book? It came from a couple things. Um, you know, I, I work a lot with the pragmatic programmers and. Uh, you know, we had been doing an, an annual update cycle on their introductory book for a few years. You know, early in its life, we would write it and then walk away for a few years and come back and basically have to do a complete rewrite. So we spent a couple of years doing that book where we were putting out like an annual cycle and just rewriting it part of every year. And that was okay, but it also led to a situation where, you know, the book had a viable shelf life of at best six months. You know, by the time we could get all the material out after the NDA expired, uh, finish it, get it printed, you know, maybe people are getting their print copies in March and then WWDC is in June. So it's sort of an insane cycle. And so the Prague sort of said, 
think maybe about any kind of topic that would be something that might have a longer shelf life, something that might be more viable, and something that isn't just going to bring in the the entry-level readers every time, because we know how to reach that audience, but there's fewer and fewer people every year who want to make an entry into iOS development. Um, and so we've sort of you know solved that problem before over and over again. So this would be the impetus, I think, also between something like Erica's book on Swift style, because that's something that's going to stay good for a long time. And the other appeal of that is you're not only speaking to the beginner audience, you're maybe giving something that's going to be valuable to uh, an intermediate or an advanced developer. So that was part of it. They said, go off, think of some ideas about something that you know, might hit a different kind of audience. And um, I think it also came to me sort of emotionally in that, you know, um, Xcode gets a lot of crap online. It does. You know, we all complain. About it. And, and it comes from the fact that this is something that we depend upon to do our jobs. And so any little glitch there is going to drive you up a wall because, you know, I need this to work and it's got some stupid little bug. And you see a lot of people online who are like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. And I am now old enough that I have gone through a lot of worst things ever. And I have seen a lot of holy wars over IDEs over the years. And so it sort of just washes over me. I just sort of say, eh, you know, that just happens. But then I see younger developers who know that, you know, they can sort of get a, a certain amount of, of street cred in the community by aping these positions when they see people who, you know, have credentials and are good developers, you know, talking crap about Xcode, they say, hey, if I talk crap about Xcode, I will be seen as legitimate. And I'm thinking, wait a second, you know, I, I'm sort of starting to, to question here how much Xcode deserves the level of abuse it gets. So I said, okay, what if we took a step back and just really dug into Xcode itself? So this isn't going to be about the frameworks because we've got books for frameworks. Let's just say I sit at the tool itself. How well do I understand this tool? And, um, with any book, I think, you know, you start out saying, you know, I know maybe a third to a half of this, but I'm going to discover the rest along the way. And I sort of just came into saying, you know what, if I just took a year and really understood more about Xcode just for myself, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So I think those were kind of the ideas that prompted the idea of writing a book just about Xcode that's for both the beginner and the intermediate and, and maybe even the advanced reader as well. I, I really like in the introduction you sort of talk about this and uh, there's a line in there that says X, it says, let me blow your mind for a minute. Xcode is good actually. And uh, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've thought about this um, partly prompted by uh, you talking about this. I've been thinking about this lately and I, I'm sort of, I, I'm sure I contribute to it, but I'm sort of tired of all the negativity about tools and, and, you know, other things in development when I feel, when I actually feel so lucky to, to be able to do what I do for my job. It's something I've loved doing since I was a kid and and some of these tools are what have made that possible. So they're not perfect, but I also know that there are people a lot like me working on them, pouring a lot of effort and care into them and they're actually doing a decent job, right? And we shouldn't see ourselves as being particularly special for being developers. I mean, you know, if we talk about the the so-called functional high ground, if you were dependent on something like Final Cut right now, you'd probably also be pretty frustrated because I do that for some of my video work. And, you know, Final Cut has had some pretty bad bugs under uh, High Sierra. And so if I were doing that for my job, I'd be upset about that, too. So I, I, I get that. You know, that's fine. But also, I think the other thing, you know, that's kind of surprising if you think about you know, if you've been in this business for a while, it's kind of interesting how having an IDE for your platform is kind of table stakes now. You just simply have to do it. 
But I, I don't know if you remember, because I think we were talking before we started recording about the older IDEs like Code Warrior. You know, you, you used to have to pay, you know, hundreds of dollars for a, a set of development tools. Uh, if you're old enough, you might remember, you know, there were no free compilers back in like, you know, the 80s or so. You would have to pay for something like a Turbo Pascal, a Turbo C, something like that. So now that you're, you know, you're getting these best of breed IDEs for free because the, the platform needs you to develop stuff for it uh, is, you know, really a product of the modern age. It's kind of surprising. It's kind of cool. Yeah, my dad who bought a, bought his first Mac in, 1987 it was a mac 2 and he paid a lot of money for it um he he still he'll still complain that back then he wanted to program for it but it was a lot of money just to get the documentation do you remember right. those docs do you remember do you how huge they were they came in loose leaves and they would take up an entire shelf yeah i've actually and there's got no them. search i've right. actually got them in my the ones that my dad got back then in my storage room before i did any native mac work i remember going over to the local micro center and they had like the, all the shelves of the books there and they had the inside macintosh volumes and they were just you know to get all of them together because you would have one just on text you would have just one on io the QuickTime one was enormous and it was just like you know it would, it would have cost me hundreds of dollars to get that documentation and i don't know if um macintosh programmer workshop was a paid thing um, you know, before we went to iOS or before we went to OS 10, you know, there was a, there was the competition between Apple's official tools and then code warrior, which was a third party tool from, from MetroWorks that everyone just loved. Honestly, it was the only one that was worth using. Yeah. Well, also because the power plant, but, uh, that just gave you a really good mm -hmm. environment to develop Mac apps in and, you know, and there was then, also in, um, prototyper because we're talking about a time before interface builder was interface builder came with all the next tools so it appeared when mac you know os 10 happened which it was in the 2000s right. but back in the 90s um, if you wanted to do user interfaces you could try to use the resource editors in um code warrior or you could buy prototyper which was so much better yeah this is pretty important to me because i I got a Mac in college. I, I, I got my first Mac that was my own, you know, not my parents in college. And, um, and it was a power book and it, it came with, you know, the, the, this, the restore CDs that came with it had, had the developer tools on them and just being able to install those without going to a lot of trouble at all, uh, and get started and you know and I bought a book for like $30 or something to learn objective C um because the barrier to entry was so low I was able to do it and and I wasn't planning for it to be a career so I just don't think I ever would have gotten into it in the first place if it hadn't had hadn't had that low barrier to entry another big thing that happened was that apple lowered the cost of becoming a developer if you remember way back, it cost a lot of money, not just to attend WWC, but to just be a developer. And that would cost, I don't remember, what was it? Something like was it $900? $300? I think was it was $300. I think it was 500, they had different, 500 they had different the levels. Yeah. yeah, 500 for the cheap one, if I remember right. And then there was another higher level that was, I don't even, well, over a thousand, it seems like. 
Mm-hmm. Now, now, some of those came with the hardware discounts. So like if you were buying masks and it was effectively 10% off consumer hardware, 20% off of uh, pro hardware. So, you know, it was very expensive. But if you were then going to buy, say, a Power Mac G5, then it would actually cancel each other out because you'd be getting 20% off a $3,000 machine. But for the most part, if you were just buying it for the sake of, of the access you know, to development tools, it was very expensive. Today, you get the development tools for free. You can get a membership in the developer program as long as you don't want to ship any apps, but it's free. You can right. start programming and deploy to devices today. And that's just a few years old now. A few years before now, you used to have to pay in order to test on devices. Right. And if you're hobbyist, you just unified. want to write... They unified the two different programs you used to have to pay for macOS and iOS separately, and it's just one thing now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was there was also a Safari uh, development program, which I think was also for uh, dashboard stuff that wasn't paid, but it was like a third membership you might have to have. It still exists. I am still a member. Excellent. I still use dashboard occasionally. <laughs> oh, so there's two of us. <laughs> I miss my stickies. Yeah, I use it Three for a few things. Oh, good. I use it for a few things, and so everybody's shocked when they don't pull it out of the OS every year, and I think, oh, I'm glad it lived another year. Oh, so much is about to go away. It's going to make me so sad. The 32-bit apocalypse. Oh. Yeah. Well, you can always run old software. But getting back to Xcode, no matter how frustrating, no matter how many times you have to restart it a day, it gets the job done. So what are your biggest frustrations? I know you're going to write all about the positive stuff, but tell me, what do you think are the biggest frustrations for Xcode, at least for you as a programmer, Chris? Um, my, I think the biggest that would be painful is uh, Swift compile times on large code bases are still pretty bad. And I'm, I'm sitting in the, the second office I have here um, in our house. And what I'm reminded of is I have a paperback book on the desk here. And at my last job, we had a fairly large Swift code base. And the reason I have this paperback book here is that every time I had to do a clean build of the entire code base, uh, that fan in that, uh, it was like a 2012 or 2014 MacBook Pro, I think it must have been 2014 probably, uh, or it was 2013. <clears throat> that fan would get running so hot and our build times were like, we had, oh man, how many source files? You know, in the hundreds, but probably maybe low 1000s, but probably in the, probably I think it's probably in the, the, the mid hundreds of source files. You know, it took five, six minutes to build the whole thing. And you also notice when you do um, the, anything where the compiler is going to help you out, things like code completion is much slower in Swift. And every time I need to do some work in OBC or procedural C, I'm always stunned by how much faster the code completion is or the the, the pop-ups that show you your, your possible completions. You can just tab into them. Uh, they're just you know so much faster for the C-based languages than the Swift ones. So I think that's one of the things for me that's an annoyance. I don't currently have that problem because what I'm working on right now is very small code bases. But for large code bases, uh, the slowness of Swift is kind of painful. What are the things then that you love? Hmm. I do, you know, the fact that it is a native Mac app just inherently makes it pleasant. Um, 
you know, I, uh, for a while I had to do some work in uh, in Visual Studio, and I know that that speaks to the the, the native uh, way that Windows does things. And I just, you know, that's never been an OS I particularly like. So the way that it you know arranges tabs and it forces an order on you and it doesn't let you resize them or stuff and they've got these you know long tree tables that go on forever and aren't particularly pleasant just the fact that xcode is a native mac app is already very pleasant uh i like that um i like the fact and it is a pro and a con actually is that xcode will get you into a template and get you up and running really quickly i mean it's very straightforward you know when you start a new project that's runnable don't write any code. You can just automatically run it right away. It gives you a place to start. So it's very easy to start, jump in and start iterating. Now, the flip side, and this is one of the, the, the concepts of the book, is that since you never have to build an Xcode project from first principles, you are never exposed to say, how do I associate these file types with the compiler, with the linker? How does all that stuff happen? It gets done for you automatically. And it continues to get done for you automatically. Every time you add a file of type Swift, it says, I'm going to add that the build phase. If you add, you know, a, an image, it's going to go in your asset library. That'll get taken care of for you and they'll get copied into the app bundle. So, um, you know, the, 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 the flip side of that is while it gets you up and running quickly, it never makes you learn its rules until you reach a level of, of advanced need where it's like, wait a second, I don't know how to do this thing and I've never had to do this thing. And now I have to look at what is actually a very large and very complex application to understand how does how does this happen? Uh, maybe a simple way of uh, a simple example that might be something along the lines of, and we have this in as an example in the book, is um, you know I say okay how do you you know uh, if I had an uh, and this is one I do in, in the book is an example of saying if you had a Mac app that was going to show programming examples, so you had a Swift file you didn't want to build, but you instead wanted to include it in the bundle so you could pop it in a window. Well, how do you do that? You'd have to you'd have to go look and say. Well, OK, what are the rules that say Swift files always get built and how do you turn off that rule? And, and the answer is you go look in your build phases, you look at the, the compile phase, you take this, you'd uncheck the Swift file that you want to just copy over in um, in that phase. Then you move down to the copy files phase and you'd add your Swift file to that phase. So it's one of these things where, um, you know, it's great that you can move fairly quickly through it. Um, but you are never, you know, forced to understand how it works until your, your needs get a little more advanced. Can you talk a little bit about Xcode's project format? Because I do know you explore that in the book. Um, well, one of the things interesting, um, the thing about the project format is, uh, you know, I like the fact that, you know, it's, uh, you know, you've got. Let, let me jump to the chase here. The thing that's scary about it is the fact that it's an XML file that if you have many people editing it at the same time, it leads to some of the nastiest freaking merge conflicts you are ever going to see. Uh, both that and storyboards are rather nightmarish concepts. Actually, we do cover the the, the chapter isn't uh, in the beta yet. But we do have a chapter on source control and how to resolve some of those kinds of things. So I do like the fact that, you know, the 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 the, the project format is kind of like, it is nice you have you have an XML for the contents that everybody sees, and then you have little subfiles within that bundle that are like, hey, here's just the settings for specific users so that you know you and I can have different settings for you know what tabs we have open, where we are in certain files, what preferences we have, and those can be stored as part of the project. Um, so that's kind of neat too. But you bring up a really important point in what you just said, which is that 
Xcode is inherently not really savvy when it comes to version control. And while it has added version control for projects, the core files you use, the bundles and the XML and so forth, they themselves are very hard to diff, you know, to look at the, the changes between versions. They are very hard to deal with conflict resolution and so forth. So why do you think Apple hasn't addressed this yet? Uh, I guess the first question would be, what is a superior uh, solution to that? And, and I'm not saying that, you know, I, I honestly don't know what is a better way to do that because it seems like, you know, they used to have a lot of, a lot more binary formats than they do now. They've moved more towards XML and, and, and you know, uh, XML plists rather than binary plists um, over the years because those are easier to source control, easier to diff. So there, there may be better ways to do this, but, you know, that's, you know, above my pay grade. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's one of those things where you don't want to say it's easy because it's obviously not, but some kind of visual tool for diffing visual files seems like it might be nice. But then there's also now talk about them going to a declarative API where you're writing your UIs in, in Swift or some domain-specific language. I mean, who knows what that's going to look like, but that may improve things. I don't know. They could yeah, also for... eliminate the project file altogether and just, like, you define it in some sort of text file and run a command that generates a temporary project file. And there are projects that do that currently. Yeah, there are build tools that that will do that. Like like CMake can generate Xcode files, for example. But is it going to capture all the things you want to capture? I mean, if you you have specific things you want to have go with a project, like I have specific, you know, what I do and don't want to build or compile for a certain target, what I want to copy for a certain target, uh, I may have build scripts that I want to associate with it. You know, the, that that level of complexity is start what I think starts walking you door, down the line towards where we are now. Yeah, I'm not convinced that's a better approach. I actually like uh, IDEs with a graphical user interface for for settings and configuration. For me, a lot of my issues have to do with Interface Builder. And everybody who ever sees Interface Builder says, wow, here's a wonderful tool that lets us talk in a design language that is perfect for communicating with designers so that it bridges the visual with the code. And I don't deny for a second that it does that, but it also does not let you do a lot of the things that you want to do as a coder. It doesn't let you comment. It doesn't let you group. There's no way to put in explanations of why you created these particular um, constraint patterns or how you expect this to behave on different screens and different geometries. And those are all things you get from doing a code-based interface. And if there was some way to express it in code and have it just be isomorphic, to the graphic design and be able to go back and forth while preserving those comments and preserving that organization, I would find that incredibly valuable. Mm, that's a neat idea. 
Now, one thing about the, the the whole thing with storyboards and nibs before them, you know, the good and the bad. I, I don't know that anyone has ever really given uh, Xcode or Interface Builder to genuine designers and said, you, a non-programmer, can use this visual tool, give us back the nib and the storyboard and we will code it. It seems that that's possible in theory. I don't know that that actually happens. I do think the advantage of starting with a visual tool rather than doing something that would be like, say, completely building your GUI in code is that Apple has always stressed, build your GUI first. Think about what it looks like. Think about the user's experience of it before you write any code. Always do that first because, you know, as I said, I came a long time ago from a Java background. And they they made their attempts in the 90s when, when desktop Java was a thing to do um, visual GUI builders. They are all based on something called the Beanbox, which was this idea that was similar to interface builders, similar to ResEdit, but it just never, never worked. Um, and the thing is, so when you think of code first, I immediately start thinking my data models. I start thinking my controllers. And then I come later to the GUI and I've already made my decisions about what my data looks like. And my GUIs tend to reflect the organization of the data. So it's like, hey, I've got a table. I'm going to just put that, you know, the database table on the screen as a visual table. And maybe that's not a good way to represent it to the user. If you think about the GUI first, you know, you're going to put more work on yourself to say, maybe adapt what the user sees to how you model it in the background. But that's something that Apple has always wanted you to do because Apple puts uh, users ahead of developers. So I think that's always been one of the thinkings behind pushing visual tools so hard is that it does orient you into thinking of things from the user's experience. Um, that's that I, I love the idea of being able to to comment your uh, your interface builder uh, and, and associate some kind of metadata with it, which is something you would get, you know, both with, yeah, honest to God, you know, writing your GUIs in code, or even doing something like, say, if you had like a, an XML markup, you could still put in XML comments. And as long as you know your tools didn't strip those comments, that could stay with your stuff. And that would be kind of nice. What did you learn about Xcode while you were writing this book? Or did you just already know everything in there? No, no. Like I said, uh, I, I usually, someone brought this up the other day on, um, on Twitter. I think it was might have been Brian Hogan, uh, who was my editor on one of the iOS books a while back. But he brought up this thing about, you know, don't be intimidated out of proposing a book or a conference talk if you're not a super expert in something. You know, know enough to make the pitch and then learn the rest as you go. And, and I, you know, quote tweeted that and said, you know, I don't think I've ever known more than 30 to 50 percent of whatever I was writing about before I started writing about it. So it's the same here. And this is where I think where I came in knowing more than I usually do. It's not like, you know, when I did that core audio book, I maybe knew a quarter of the material, probably not even that and just learned the rest of it as I was going. Uh, I think that's a good way to do it. So of the things I learned, the thing that I always dreaded was handling code signing. Because let's face it, code signing is the worst. It's horrible. It's so painful. And it, I put it off to like the third to last chapter. Um, it's actually with the editor now. And I just did not want to deal with that. A couple things ended up helping me there. First is the fact that the automatic code signing that was introduced in, in Xcode 8 and uh, improved in Xcode 9, that works pretty well for a single developer, for a small team. Uh, and, and in the sense of a, of a book, it teaches you, it lets you learn that before you have to really grasp the difficult stuff of doing it um, manually. And so what I got my head around was actually I found a good line through that chapter, which was, and this is one of the, the the fun things about the book is because it's about the tool itself. 
uh, I gave myself the freedom to choose any platform and any language that made a given topic easier to work with because I knew all the examples were going to be simple enough that if I'm showing you something that, you know, maybe happens to be an NS button versus a UI button, it's going to be so simple, it's not going to kill you. If something, you know, takes a, you know, if I'm setting string value rather than text, it's not going to kill you. You're going to get the gist of it. So, um, what I decided to do for this chapter was I actually started with sandboxing on the Mac because that was something where you could take all that signing stuff out of the equation and do this one simple thing. I've got a sandbox app. What do I interact with to change my settings? Well, there I'm going to need some different capabilities and some of them are just purely local, but then others get you into the world of entitlements. What are entitlements? Well, there you got to start looking at what's in your, your developer account. And that's going to tie you into an app ID. We'll have certain entitlements for it. Like if you say you want your app to work with iCloud, but then if you're doing that, you will also have to code sign. Well, how do you code sign? Well, you're going to have your app ID. We'll have a set of entitlements. And then there's a certificate that identifies you as a person who signs the apps that you submit to Apple. And then they can match the app ID and the entitlements it has. And those things will be created for you automatically. If you have automatic set in your project, but if you don't want to do that, or sometimes in, in team situations, you can't do that. Well, now you see how those pieces all fit together. So uh, it was kind of, you know, this is something where I felt like with code signing, every time I came back to it from being away for a while, I felt like I had to relearn it. And this time, I think both bolstered by the fact that I found a gradual approach to, to, to write this chapter, but also that automatic does some things for you and that a lot of developers will be able to just use automatic code signing. It actually made that a lot easier to deal with. And that's going to be the next chapter that comes out in the beta. Uh, it may be out by the time this podcast is out. And, and I hope that's going to uh, put some people at ease because I, I found at the end of the day, it's like, okay, this was not as bad as I had feared. A big thanks to Microsoft for sponsoring this episode of iFreaks to promote the App Center, a continuous integration delivery and feedback suite of cloud services for Swift and Objective-C apps. With App Center, you can automate your iOS and macOS development lifecycle, build, test, distribute, monitor, and push to ship five-star, high-quality apps faster and with confidence. Building a development pipeline in your iOS apps has always been a challenge, but with App Center, you can get started in minutes. Simply connect your GitHub and Bitbucket repos and build in the cloud, test on thousands of real iOS devices, distribute to beta testers and Apple's App Store, and monitor real-world usage with crash and analytics data. As a fully modular suite of services, you can pick and choose the service you need and connect it to the tools you already use. Sign up now on appcenter.ms and spend less time managing your app lifecycle and more time coding. I keep waiting for Guy to jump in, but he's just strangely quiet. And I've been trying to not overdo. Sorry, I've been quiet. I uh, was actually solving an issue here for a colleague. <laughs> he called me on, on Slack with some Git crisis. Actually, that, that would be a good topic to continue if you want me to go ahead. Yeah, please do. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, do you talk about Git and other source control things on your book, how you can use Xcode to handle Git and they have nice GitHub integration now. So do you talk about that? 
Yes, we do have a chapter on um, source code management, um, which let's face it is Git at this point because uh, it has uh, Xcode has for a number of years supported uh, Subversion and Git side by side. But they announced uh, at WWDC 2017 that they were going to be deprecating and removing the Subversion support, and you should no longer count on it. And it seems like the Subversion support is kind of like halfway there. If you uh, open up a subversion controlled project in Xcode, you'll still see the indicators for modified, added conflict, but uh, some of the subversion actions already don't work. And I think they will probably disappear in the future. Um, so it's, you know, the chapter is mostly about Git. And um, the thing with that, I would say, I put out a question on Twitter as I was writing. I said, does anyone out there depend entirely on Xcode? for their Git work. I found no takers. And what I did find instead was a real spectrum of the degree to which people will use Xcode uh, Git support. Some people do not use it at all. They completely ignore the fact that Xcode integrates with Git in any way, shape, and form, and they just use you know, the GitHub app, uh, Tower, or the command line. Uh, there are other people, though, and like I said, it's it's sort of a spectrum of how much people will use it. People will do it, uh, will use it for simple commits. Uh, people will use it for uh, viewing uh, their commits before they, you know, before they merge. Um, you know, one thing I think it's very good for exploring your history. Um, you know, so if I want to see where a change got made, uh, the fact that you can just use those uh, the pop-up bottoms, the bottom, uh, the pop-up menus at the bottom of the two panes to you know, just arbitrarily do a diff between any two revisions. Usually you're looking at head and then some revision in the past on the same branch to say, when did this change? But you have the ability to look at different branches and do that. Xcode makes that very pleasant to look at. Um, the commit UI is very nice. So I, by my personal use of it, for example, is uh, I usually don't use it for commits. I, usually, I use Xcode's Git support more for exploring Git history. I think it's really nice for that. Um, but we do cover in the book just how far you can get with it. And I should say, you know, this is the chapter where I really do say this is something where Xcode is not a complete solution uh, because there are a number of Git commands that Xcode does not implement in any way, shape, or form. Usually it's that really exotic history rewriting stuff, things like cherry pick, things like rebase, you know, Xcode does not support that at all. If you want to do that, you need to go to the command line or possibly one of the GUI apps. I don't know that they do that. I assume they do, but I, you know, I, I basically use Xcode and command line myself. Um, but the other thing with Git on Xcode, and I haven't looked at this in a while, but, you know, the, the Git support used to live in, I think it used to be in the organizer and now it has moved out to be its own uh, navigator on the left pane. That makes it project-oriented. Uh, I don't know what happens in Xcode if you manage to get a merge conflict in the project itself, because then I would assume you can't open the project, and then you can't use the Git tools within Xcode to resolve the problem with the project itself. At that point, you're probably scurrying for some other solution like the command line. So this, I think the the the, the SCM chapter, more than any other, is one where we said, hey, Xcode is not a complete solution. It does some neat, neat nice things, um, but it, it, it is, you know, I wouldn't know. I don't know if I would say it's a weakness of it, but it, it has its limits. Okay, Chris, I have a few really critical questions to ask you. All right, here what we go. What theme do you use? Uh, 
I use the third party theme. Um, this is something actually we cover in the book too. The, there's all sorts of great third party themes uh, you can get from uh, GitHub. I use one called Weird and Steel, which I mean, you know, look past the Atlas Shrugged reference if that's going to be a, uh, a political problem for you. I just like the fact that it's kind of uh, mostly gray, but not solid black. So the contrast isn't too high, but it has sort of like a metallic look to it. And I, I do like that as my theme, except, of course, when I'm live streaming, I then have to go to presentation large so that my stuff is visible. But yeah, day by day, it's um, it's reared in steel. Okay. I'll have to check that I, out. I've been using I've been using Civic, the one they added a couple of years ago. Mm. I actually like it. Have you jumped onto Viracode? I have not. Now I'm trying to remember what Viracode even is. Viracode is the hot font. It everybody has fallen in love with it. It's an open source oh. font. It's available on GitHub. The cool I, thing I, is it has ligatures for like like hyphen greater than like an arrow in Swift. Yeah, it actually shows actually, the ligature arrow. as an arrow. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I am old. I think, yeah, I, I tend to still think Inconsolata looks like a lovely programming font. So that's one of my fallbacks. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just use the Seth Mono. So do I. You're not alone, Guy. Cool. And I, I actually use a theme by John Sandel, which is the one he uses for all of his Xcode tips books. Uh, I mean, blog posts. And I really like that. But I don't use his recommended font, which is Source Code Pro. I think I actually use SF Mono. And he hates me for that. I use SF Mono also. So it's, it's, it's like an iFreaks theme happening here. Now, I do want to ask, have you ever tried coding with a uh, non-monospaced font? Because we do have a sidebar about that in the book. And um, <laughs> By try, do you mean more than three minutes? <laughs> it is the way of madness. And I like, I look at it sometime and I think, oh, God, you know, these uh, proportional fonts. And, you know, I, I get some nice kerning and, you know, like my comments look lovely. It's just anytime I need to line break, everything goes completely to hell. I think it's, it's better with Swift than with OBC. Because uh, with OBC, you know, it wants to line up the colons and they don't line up and it's a disaster. Um, it's a little bit better with Swift and C. But um, I come and go from that. I, I basically, I tried it for a week when I wrote about it in the book and then I bailed on it. Yeah, the but this is, uh, this is actually a thing that that some people do. I think Will Shipley uh, of Delicious Monster is a proportional font coder. You know, I have a screenshot in the book, and you look at it and say, God, that looks nice. I would like to be able to do that all day. But I think maybe the editor would need to become smarter about saying, I realize you're not using, you know, a monospaced font here. So if I need to line up under the, the previous uh, – the preceding lines, you know, comma or open parenthesis or whatever, I can't use a set number of characters. I'm actually going to have to go into and measure out some font metrics and make that work. Maybe that should be, maybe I should file that as a bug report because it, <laughs> I'm it, sure it, it that would be, be made, very high priority for them. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't have enough to work on, but um, if that can be made to work, that might, that might be very pleasant because that, that really is the killer for me with uh, proportional fonts on, uh, on Xcode is like anytime I have to break line and indent, it just, yeah. It's not just that. If you use Emacs key equivalents mm -hmm. and you're trying to go 
one line up, one line down, left, oh, right, God, yes. character by character. <laughs> yeah. This is why I didn't last more than a few minutes with the proportional fonts. But okay, even more important question. Ready? And okay. I want you to think very carefully about your answer, okay? Tabs or spaces? I get to dodge this one because the publisher requires spaces because that's what lines up better in their book. So, uh, so for the book, well, it's all it, you. Um, I honestly tend to use spaces because I know that at any point in time, I can just go in, select all, control L to fix it. So if anything happens, have tabs in there, zap uh, doesn't anymore. So four spaces or two. <sighs> I like four, but in the book we use two because paper is expensive. <laughs> Guy, what do you use? I actually use four spaces. I think two are not enough to actually give you a look of indentation. Also, an interesting question I have, I guess, is which font size do you use? Because I use 13 and many people say that it's too large. I'm getting old. I use 14. I use 19. Now, I should mention, this is when I'm working. It's a little different because, you know, like uh, on my day job, I have a work-assigned uh, laptop and there are spaces at a premium. Uh, for doing the book and for doing my work at home, I have a Trashcan Mac Pro with a 29-inch 4K screen. So there, you know, I'm sitting in this, you know, this monitor fills my entire field of vision. I could use slightly smaller fonts because I have a lot more screen to look at. Okay. Do am I the only person on earth who italicizes keywords? I've seen that before, but I've I don't do it. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I don't like that. Why not? Not saying you're wrong, but you may be wrong. <laughs> I don't know. I I find it weird. Uh I associate italics with comments for some reason. Yeah, I don't know what font it is. I've seen a few people that I know using it where the or, or what theme it is, but they're they've set it up so that comments are in this sort of cursive looking. I guess it's the italics for that font, but but it looks like cursive. That looks kind of funny to me. Who needs to be going out and buying your book? I am hoping that Basically, people who are sort of mid-career in their their iOS and Mac development careers will get it. You know, so people who have you know they've learned iOS, they've worked with it for a year or two. Um, you know, especially people who think they know everything. It's like you're going to find new and fun things in here, and I hope that's going to like spark some interest. And one thing I, I it's a sort of a stealthy thing is one of the reasons I was eager to include all four of Apple's platforms is to encourage people to jump around a little bit more. Um, you know, we've had this debate going on this year about, you know, is the Mac too hard to program for an iOS developer? And I want to get some Mac code in front of their faces and say, no, that's not really different at all. I'm totally fine with that. Um, in the same way, you know, if we have, I think Mac people are going to be lured over to iOS naturally, but I wanted to, to, to get that out there. And, and similarly, you know, with obc C and, and, and Swift, uh, I think, you know, looking at it from the point of view of the IDE, which has to support all of those things, if you come in as a developer, you'd say, okay, well, hey, that, that looks kind of cool over there. I could do something like that. I could, I could write a TV app. I could write a, 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 
a, a watch app that doesn't look that different. Uh, in particular, I'd like to see more people writing uh, Mac apps in Swift because you know so many of the Mac apps are older, so they have well-established uh, uh, code bases that are in obc. There's not really this awareness that you can write Mac applications in Swift, and they work fine. They're great. Yeah, I've I remember that. in the keynotes uh, when they released Swift, uh, I think it was 2014, right? And they included all of the SDK stuff, including Swift, in the iOS section of the keynotes. And the keynote ended, and I was still not sure if you could use Swift for macOS development. I, I've had this question recently from people who are iOS developers, they say, you know, and they find out I'm a Mac developer and they say, oh, you have to use Objective-C, right? You can't use Swift. Like it's, it's actually a misconception that's out there. Yeah. And so hopefully we can fix that. And again, this is going to be something where, you know, people are going to look at this book and they'll be going through and they just naturally read C or uh, uh, Swift and they come across an example. It's like, well, hey, wait, that's a Mac example, but it's written in Swift. It's like, yeah, that's a thing. No reason you can't do that. Some of the people listening to the podcast might not be familiar with uh, Pragmatic Programmer's beta program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's one of the things I like about working with the Pragmatic Programmers. Um, so the idea of the beta program is the book, once it reaches a certain level of doneness internally, uh, you know, so they, they know that the book is going to get finished by the author. They are going to have something they can put out. Uh, they offer it as a beta. Uh, and what that means is that in this case, we have uh, the book has come out as as an ebook with seven of its twelve chapters. Um, there are actually three others that are already fully written, and they're just going to roll out slowly. And I have two more to do after that. But what this means is that you can get access to the book before it's completed, and you can provide feedback. You can go to the book's homepage. You can file a rata. Um, there are no longer forums on the site, which is a long story that involves politics. So I won't. To go in that, I'll just refer you to uh, Andy Hunt, the publisher, um, and, and then what's going on there. But, um, you know, you can get in touch with me personally, you know, just ping me on Twitter even. But uh, the advantage of the, the um, doing it as a beta that way is that as we get feedback in the form of errata and form of comments, people say, hey, wait a second, you know, you really ought to cover this. And uh, some of the feedback we've gotten both from tech reviews and from readers so far is saying, are you going to do this? I'm like, oh, you know, I wasn't planning to, but now that you mention it, I really should. And so that has the ability to improve a book before it comes out. It's not like I'm coming to you with this, this printed book and you say, oh, that's great, but you never covered XC config files. It's like, uh, well, maybe I'll do a second edition in five years. You know, now you can tell me now, no, you have to cover XC config files. And yeah, by the way, I have to cover XC config files. Um, so that's one of the nice things about the, the, the beta program. And then the other thing is, um, the ebook is fairly inexpensive. Uh, if you want to get it as a bundle, you can just go ahead and get the beta book now. And then when the print edition is offered, they will offer you an upgrade price, which is exactly the difference between what you already paid and what it would then cost to just buy it as a bundle of ebook and paper. And one of the things about the pregs is that most of their sales now are electronic. Um, you know, some people are doing bundles. Some people are doing um, ebooks. Fairly few people now are just doing the print edition because you can get it so much faster. Uh, and one advantage of going through the publisher versus, say, going to uh, iBooks or, or Amazon is that with, uh, with the Prags program, you get all those formats uh, 
basically they stick with you on your your bookshelf on their site forever. Um, so you get an EPUB that works with uh, iBooks, you get uh, a, a .mobi that works with Kindle, and you got a PDF file, uh, which would also work with iBooks. So when are we going to see the book? Well, the beta is out now as of, uh, well, it was came out in April. Um, the date on the webpage right now is August. That would be the point at which all the content is done. All the feedback and errata are fixed. It goes through copy editing. It goes through production for the physical edition. And it goes through printing. So probably the final edition would come out in August. That does leave me the opportunity to possibly deal with any changes that come up during WWDC. It's a little tricky because, you know, would the stuff that comes up at WWDC still be covered by an NDA? It may come down to, are there going to be radical changes? And this does give us the opportunity to look at what happens at WWDC and make any necessary decisions so we don't get a title that's instantly dated. Um, I don't expect the fundamental nature of Xcode to change. It really hasn't in many years, really not since I, I would argue um, when they went from multiple windows back to the, the one true window back in Xcode 4. It's been a, a more iterative process since then. And, you know, probably the biggest change has been the addition of the Swift programming language. So, um, you know, that's an advantage that we can look to see if anything really big happens in June, we can still react to it. Okay. Xcode for iPad, never or possibly? I like to uh, use the, uh, the concept. I remember somebody said, somebody made an analogy once. They said, this is like imagining the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1970s in that it is impossible in the short run, inevitable in the long run. So it, it seems like at some point it must happen. Um, but are we going to see it this year? I would be stunned. Will we see it by 2020? I think at that point I'd give you 50-50 odds. Uh, will it happen by 2025? Uh at this at that point, I would say the only thing we keep that from happening would be the iPad itself just completely falling out of favor or being replaced by something else. I hope it happens someday, but it's clearly not happening tomorrow. Playgrounds augurs well for the idea. And yeah. um, Playgrounds is neat. Playgrounds is cool. Obviously, Playgrounds has its limits. Um, I always thought that, that Xcode moving to the single window, even though it predated the iPad, but that seemed like... To, being one of those things that is, um, you know, necessary, but not sufficient, you know, because you obviously couldn't have a multi-window Xcode on iPad. I kind of think if I were doing that today, if I were in their shoes, I think the thing I would find most intimidating would be interface builder. I mean, completely reinventing that for a touch interface would be a hell of a job. Um, so unless, you know, the rumors we've heard now about declarative UI, you know, change that equation. And maybe maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But um, I think that would be the, the, the hardest thing to do at this point. Are you going to cover, uh, this is probably pretty esoteric, but Xcode can actually be set up to, to be used as an IDE for other things besides just Apple platform development. It's fairly extensible. So you could set it up to, you know, write Python apps or something if you really wanted to. Um, I wonder if you're going to cover that at all. Um, I make a brief reference in there somewhere to the fact that there actually is a, there's a Python API that you can call into Xcode with. Um, and, and of course, you can use build scripts 
to arbitrarily build anything. You know, we, we do cover build scripts. So, you know, you could use anything you can do on the command line can become part of your build process. So I've always imagined it would be possible to say, you know, write a whole bunch of Go code and then just have build scripts that would, you know, compile your Go sources and then get those into the process. So I don't go really deeply into it. It's more like just point to it and say it's there. Um, it's also funny if you think about it, over the years, um, a number of other languages have come and gone from Xcode because you mentioned Python. Back in the, I think, the Leopard or Snow Leopard era, both Ruby and Python were first class languages for Cocoa development. And they just never really clicked and, and were soon removed. Uh, there was also Java support in the past. So it's a very flexible IDE and you can do stuff like that. If you want instructions on how to use an external language in Xcode, I have written that and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Excellent. Oh, very cool. The The build rules tab actually lets you set. I don't think anybody ever looks at that build rules tab uh, in target settings, but that actually lets you set up custom rules for right. any kind of source code file you want. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, and Erica has a good article about that for Python. Yeah, and, and in the um in the chapter on building, we do mention you know the build rules tab is what associates a given file type with what Xcode knows to do with it. There's stuff in there that I haven't ever even thought about, like res files. That's old school. Yeah, but it's in there. Is there anything we you think we should talk about, Chris, before we wrap up? Well, I know, uh, Andrew, you, know, you and I have both done core audio in the past, and you did ask me on Twitter at one point, what is the future of the core audio book? And I suppose that's something worth talking about because that book lasted a really long time because the underlying core audio API has not changed. But I do get questions about it. Say, are you going to update that someday? And a few things have changed within core audio over the years. Um, there's no longer a concept of canonical formats, for example. But for the most part, that book works. The problem is so much of it has moved now to a AV Foundation. And we saw it last WWDC. Um, the, uh, Apple said that they are going to uh, be deprecating the, uh, the AU graph this year, which is how you connect audio units. And that's really the heart and soul of that book right in the middle is two chapters on audio units and audio graphs. So at this point, um, I, I've been telling people actually for a couple of years now, do not expect an update to that book. Really, you would need a new book uh, about doing audio in uh, AV Foundation. I don't know if I'm going to do that next. I don't quite know what's going to happen. I would say that if I did do something with an audio title in the future, it might not even be a book. Uh, because I always found it very difficult in that book to write about sound, uh, to steal a line from Frank Zappa. It's sort of like dancing about architecture. You know, it just fundamentally doesn't work to try to like write out what the difference between a saw wave and a square wave and a sine wave are. Um, I, if I come back to the topic of audio, I would be highly inclined to do something more along the line of a set of playgrounds or a playground book. Um, where you would get like your learnings and your code and you'd be able to run the code or you'd be able to tweak the code right in that experience. Um, I was a little inspired here by uh, Liz Marley. I think she's at Omni. She does a thing at conferences. I saw it at Nextdoor uh, last year and then again at uh, Swift by Northwest. She does a thing where she uh, teaches a fine transforms with a playground book. And it's just such a great way to learn the material. I said, man, if 
if a playground can support all the audio stuff that I would need, that would be such a good way to teach audio. That is a cool idea. Um, I think a, an update to that or, or a new book that covered the AV audio engine stuff would be really great. I think there's a little bit of that material in uh, you know, Bob McCoon wrote a uh, a uh, an AV Foundation book a couple of years ago. I don't know how much of the AV audio stuff he has in there, but that's like the one title out there on AV Foundation. AV Foundation is just getting bigger and bigger all the time. It seems like, um, but I it, feel I feel like the AV audio engine stuff is quite apart from the you know traditional AV Foundation. Well, AV Foundation is like five foundation five frameworks trying to break out from one framework because you have, you know, the capture framework has almost nothing in common with the editing and playback. There is a wrapper around old QuickTime and QT movies. There's the audio stuff and, um, I'm forgetting something else. Uh, but it's like, there's, it, it feels like it probably should have been several separate frameworks because, you know, not only does it do a lot of things, but most of those separate areas I've described really don't overlap. You know, the, the capture stuff, doesn't tie into the the assets and compositions that you use for for editing and export at all. It's sort of like you you capture and then you've got a file that you can edit or you capture into uh, core video buffers, but those can't immediately become an asset. So yeah, it's it's AV Foundation is is huge and pretty messy. Yeah, and I kind of wonder what they're doing with core MIDI. Some of that's in AV Foundation now, but it's not a full replacement yet. And I guess we'll see. Yeah. Is there anything else you do that you think people should know about? I know you do your live streams, which is kind of a, yeah. a unique thing. I don't really know anybody else that does that the way you do. Yeah, it's kind of a weird kick of mine. Um, I started doing it last year and it was something where um, – you know, it was something where I wanted to, I had been interested in live streams since I was like talking about it at conferences and, and came to understand, you know, how the HTTP live streaming, uh, protocol works. I was interested in that. And I saw all these, you know, different, uh, people, you know, streaming different stuff. And, you know, most of it is, you know, things like Twitch, for example, is probably the biggest one. I mean, people, I think underestimate how big live streaming has gotten at this point that at any given time, there are more people watching Twitch than are watching most cable television networks. You know, at any given time, there are several hundred thousand people watching Twitch, maybe even in the low millions. So it's it's really an extraordinary thing. And I had friends who just did, you know, sort of their own fun live streams of like, you know, you playing video games or, you know, doing a MST3K style watch alongs and stuff. So I wanted to get into that. And so, yeah, but rather than, um, you know, rely on a Twitch or a YouTube or someone else, I did the the stupid thing and I set up my own site on AWS um, and set up uh, all my own software for that. And then, yeah, so on Tuesday nights I come on and I do um, go for about two hours. And usually what I do is um, I'll do some stuff uh, about how to build something. And last year I basically worked through all the iOS 10 book. And now this year I'm working through the the uh, the Xcode Treasures book. And I can you know, basically take that, that video that I did live and I can host it on Vimeo. And I'm slowly building out like a video archive to go along with the entire book. So people can just, you know, watch that. And particularly with Xcode, that works really well to see things visually. So rather than write about it, it's like you can see like uh, last night's show, I did the um, uh, visual debugging, you know, where you can um, you know, pause your app in the simulator 
and then slide around and split out all the layers. You can see, you know, where your constraints are and who's overlapped on top of who and, you know, all that neat stuff that you get with visual debugging. And, you know, I can put some screenshots in the book, but when you just show it live and say, hey, you know, slide this thing here, here's what the effect looks like. You know, you, you just get it immediately. So that's really fun. And then from there, I go in and do some um, do some iOS game Let's Plays and do some visual novel stuff and run some interstitials where I like list all the upcoming uh, iOS and Mac developer conferences. So it, it's a fun thing. My, my viewership live is in the single digits, but it's fun for me to do, for, at least for now. What sort of response are you getting from your, your live streams? Are people watching them and giving you feedback? Uh, I do have a Slack channel. Sometimes people will catch when I make a mistake and try to fix it, which is nice. I'm a little distracted because I am both, you know, performer and producer at the same time. Mostly, I don't get a ton of feedback live because, as I said, the viewership tends to be in the the single digit range. Um, but when I put the videos up later on uh, on Vimeo, or you know, I don't want to put them on YouTube because they're evil. So I, I pay for Vimeo and put all the videos there, and I get a decent number of views. Um, not a ton of feedback. I think it's mostly of the, the, the Xcode stuff. It's just sort of passive viewing of people who would rather get that material in video form than written form. And what type of tip can you give people who are interested in starting to do those live streams? Because I myself am interested in maybe doing that in the future. Well, one thing is, um, so I actually, the, the problem is it's sort of a rich person's hobby. Um, I use a software to do it called, um, uh, Wirecast, which is like, I think 500 bucks. It's quite expensive. Um, there's another one for Mac. I think it's like Vivo live or something. I forget what it is. They're a subscription plan. They're very expensive, but there is a completely free broadcaster piece you can use. And that's called OBS for open broadcast software. And the idea is the reason you have to get some piece of a, of a, a production software is, you know, whether you're capturing from your camera or your screen, or you're compositing those together, those have to be assembled into a stream in a format called RTMP, real-time media protocol. That's what you upload to a streaming server. Um, now, if you wanna be completely free, you could use OBS to produce your stream, and then um, YouTube now lets anybody live stream through their channel. So if you have a YouTube account, you could live stream through that, and that could at least get your feet wet before you decide, you know, yes, this is cool. This is fun. I'm good at this, but I don't want YouTube to own my stuff forever and monetize it. Or in my case, I violate enough copyrights. I would be shut down by content ID in a second. So then you could go, you know, set up your own streaming server on AWS or some other platform. Uh, Vimeo now does it. There's a couple other live streamers that are gone now. I actually got started with one called Ustream, but I think they got absorbed by IBM. Uh, there's livestream.com is also available, but I guess that'd be the first thing I would say is download UBS, um, and that will get you started. It's not a particularly pleasant GUI because it's cross-platform in the most, you know, bare bones way possible, or actually it's, it's OBS, open broadcast software. It's the most bare bones, uh, experience possible, but it will get you started. Or just use Twitch. Yeah. Or just use Twitch. Well, the thing is you can use OBS or Wirecast with Twitch, um, the, the the thing with Twitch is, you know, so it's a, you know, you'll, you, you'll, the more successful broadcasters are using more elaborate setups in their home. They're using better cameras. They're using backdrops. They're using green screens. They're integrating elements like their chat overlaid on the screen. Now, the other thing with Twitch, of course, is you usually have to be 
broadcasting a video game. There are not there are whole fields of content where if they catch you doing it, they're going to shut down your stream. So, you know, you, you might have to if, if what you are doing is something other than playing video games, you'll need to look elsewhere than Twitch. But if you are doing video games, yeah, Twitch is a great place to get started. They, they help you out a lot. Is that still true? I, I, I watch regularly lots of streams that are not game related. And uh, specifically, I watch some people who are on Twitch only doing programming live streams. Oh, okay. I didn't know that changed. That was the case as of like a year or two ago. But yeah, if that's changed, that's cool. Um, because I know people in the past, I, I, I knew people who had to like, you know, they put up fake green, fake screens that looked like games while they were actually doing something else. But, um, yeah, maybe Twitch has, has backed off on that. I think it's a good strategy because the alternative is YouTube. And like you said, they're evil. They're evil and, of course, content ID. I mean, it's bad enough with, um, I think, on Twitch now, if you're, like, you know, just playing your own music in iTunes, sometimes that gets caught and automatically silenced. If it says, oh, hey, there's a pop song that you don't own, I'm going to turn off your audio, um, which is kind of a drag. I think Twitch does that now, but I definitely know that YouTube does it. Okay, now they think about it, yeah, I have a friend who does, um, she does, uh, like, drawing stuff uh you know she's a, she's an artist so she'll do like hey watch me do this you know she, she goes to like uh pop culture conventions and stuff and draws stuff and um yeah she nothing about it. she's on twitch too but you know she'll be playing music and sometimes you like i'll watch the replays of it and on the timeline there'll be these blacked out sections and if you bounce over it it says oh well this was playing some some audio that we decided was copyrighted so we've we've uh muted it for that part i'm like for, for heaven's sakes well, at least they mute only the part where there's the content because I think YouTube used to mute the entire video. Yeah, which you know, makes your video useless. That's yeah. another thing I do is you know when I'm recording, and it's kind of a it's kind of tricky because I'm pushing my Mac Pro to the limit. I'm actually making two encodes at the same time. I'm doing a 1.4 megabit upcode to upload to the stream, which is about as much as I can do with the upload speed I have on my my internet at home. But I'm also doing uh, a four or five megabit local encode so i have an archive because some of those places yes they'll save your your work on the server but if they've decided to take out the audio it's lost forever so i'm always going to have you know my own copy locally you know just for archival purposes this is all cool thanks for talking to us chris um we're we've we've gone long so i think we should get the picks uh let's see let's start with erica do you have any picks for us Want to automatically build, test, and release your iOS and macOS apps? Try AppCenter. Connect your repo within minutes, build in the cloud, test on thousands of real iOS devices, distribute to beta testers and Apple's App Store, and monitor real-world usage with crash and analytics data. Spend less time managing your app lifecycle and more time coding. Visit appcenter.ms and get started for free. I do, and my pick relates to who we have on next week. Um, we're going to have... Uh, Maren Tartarov on again. And to prepare for that, I am going to pick his new application called Snippity. And what it is, is for anyone who does code demonstrations or who does teaching, where you need to have code that you add to Xcode as you're demonstrating or teaching or whatever you're doing, you can prepare a markdown file with each snippet you can annotate it with notes so you have little prompts about what each code snippet does. And then as you're talking, 
it's just so simple to add those those snippets into your project and then it's just makes a really burdensome situation so much easier the current state of the technology without this in xcode is you basically have to create snippets in their editor name them and then do the completion and grab them and put them into the code this just you you work through your talk you just keep going from snippet to snippet to snippet and a single click puts it into the pasteboard and then you're ready to just put it into whatever file you're working on it is so convenient i was a beta tester for several months and i immediately got a copy as soon as it was released um i put a link into the show notes but it's at snippety.org sorry snippety.io and it's spelled snippet like with an e snippet like a code snippet uh, ty.io and it's fabulous thanks erica uh Guy, do you have any picks for us yes today i'm going to pick an api which is not that new but i know that many people haven't heard of it and it's the os log api so this is the new not that new since ios 10 unified logging system that's available on all apple platforms with uh, ios 10 mac os 10.12 tvos 10 and watchOS 3 and it is a very simple api to use but it's very powerful because you can define subsystems and categories for your logs and different levels. So like debug, info, error, and such. And I've been using it in my projects that support the the platforms where it's available. And it's very useful even during development to get the console app up and filter by subsystem and category and log level and it really helps with debugging tricky stuff when you have enough logs and you can filter with so many criteria. So I really recommend that people study and use the OS log API. Cool. Is it still true that you can't get your own logs with OS log? I mean, programmatically. I think so. Yeah, I think that's the case. And it's one of the downsides of the api yeah it's pretty annoying because i would like to be able to get my own logs so that a user can submit them within the app uh, and you can't do that so you end up having to fall back to coco lumberjack again or something cool thanks ski chris do you have a pick for us yes i do have a pick uh my pick actually is an itunes movie and the movie is well let me tell you, I, I knew we'd be talking about Xcode. I thought, oh, should, I should do something X-themed. Maybe I could do X-Men or X-Files. But what I decided instead was to pick a documentary called We Are X. And this is a documentary about the uh, the Japanese band X-Japan. They are kind of like a mix between glam, prog, and metal. Uh, in the early days, they kind of look like Kiss, but they uh, they, they sound more like, uh, like Queen. And it's just this uh, amazing story over the years how uh, basically it's mostly centered around the very troubled uh, drummer and piano player for the band. Um, but also the uh, the lead singer was recruited by a cult. He dropped out. The band broke up. 
two of the members died over the years. One killed himself. Uh, then the band got back together. And it's all told this, this backstory is like working up to them playing a big concert at Madison Square Garden. And you realize that they have this very substantial Western following. They were, um, you know, they, like Gene Vincent of Kiss, uh, David Bowie, Marilyn Manson are all big fans of this band. So really just uh it's a very uplifting story too uh that this that the people in this band are so troubled and they are the really the voice of a lot of uh of people who just really look to their music and the nice thing in itunes is it gives you a ton of extra stuff you get scenes that were left out of the film you get the reaction of of yushiki the drummer to seeing the film and you get a couple uh live concert performances so it's one of those bundles it's more like getting a dvd or a blu-ray as an itunes purchase you don't just get the movie you get all this cool extra stuff too I, I should watch that. That sounds really interesting to me. It's pretty heavy, actually. Um, but you know, for for obvious reasons. But you know, check out the trailer. I think you know, you look at the trailer, and you know, if if the fact that you know it's going to be something foreign to you is, is off putting, then you know, maybe it's not going to be your thing. But I think uh, I think people will dig it. And th- th- actually, the band sings a lot of its songs in English, or you know, do partially English, partially Japanese. So you know, most of it, the 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 two members of the band actually speak English fairly fluently. So there's not you know, much of a cultural barrier for an English speaker to get into either. Cool. I speak Japanese, so I like watching ah. things with <laughs> Japanese in them. But Sugoi. Yeah. It's been a little while since I've really spoken it every day, so I've gotten <laughs> pretty bad at it, but uh what <laughs> Um I have two picks today. I'm gonna pick something called Online Swift Playground. Uh it's it's actually a it's a web app. It's a website that's that's an online Swift Playground. Um, it's not the only one of those. Uh, IBM had one when Swift first came out. Um, but the cool thing about it is that it's open source and it's writ- it itself, the web app itself, is written in Swift with Katura. Uh, the front end, I think, is written using, um, oh, I don't know. I can't even remember now. It's JavaScript something. But the back end is written in, in Swift. Uh, and uh, I I think this is cool because I was curious about how they were accomplishing this, and and uh, you can just dig into the source code and see it, and it's not actually crazy. It's pretty straightforward. So it's a cool thing to check out if you want to see how somebody's built a a real web app in Swift with Katura and is also doing something that's a little out of the ordinary in terms of letting you enter and compile and run Swift. My second pick is a magazine called juiced.j sorry juiced.js um juiced.js has been around for 25 years or something it's a originally it was a magazine about the apple 2gs and it it has since sort of moved to be just about all apple 2s not the 2gs specifically um it is a print magazine it's still in circulation with subscribers you can subscribe and actually get one in your mailbox which is pretty crazy to me and uh, I just think it's cool that that people are still doing that and care enough about it to still be putting out a magazine. Um, the, the I just subscribed, and the first issue I got, which is the current issue, includes how to hook your Apple II up to Wi-Fi and how to use Git and GitHub with Apple II source code. So it's not just a bunch of people completely stuck in the past. They're only half stuck in the past, and it's pretty fun to read. Those are my picks. That's amazing. So basically, the the technology on the Apple II is up with a modern era, but the whole distribution technique of being a print magazine is still trapped in the past. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know if they distribute a you know an electronic version, but you definitely get a paper one in in the in the mail. Wow, it takes me back to Byte and Creative Computing and Dr. Dobbs era. There aren't very many of those niche uh, print magazines left. They've they've all kind of you know had trouble with the internet and and gone away. At least most of them. Okay, well, thanks for coming on, Chris. It's been great to talk to you. Uh, I've already started reading your book and looking forward to finishing it and seeing the the rest of the chapters come in as you finish them. And for those listening, go check it out. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun to write. Uh, I, I've learned some things myself, and, and I hope that, hopefully that people are going to like take a second look at Xcode and find some new things you didn't knew, know were there. And even if it doesn't make you like Xcode, maybe it can at least you know show you something you didn't know you could do, make your programming life a little easier, a little more pleasant. All right. Talk to everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.